let me encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to be turning to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. We're in verses 15 down through verse 23 at the end of chapter 1. We're in Ephesians as our summer series. And as you're, as you're turning, I, I was thinking, it seems like there is never enough time in the day. And I'm sure you felt it, the crunch of this much to do in this much time to get it done. So I've wondered, I've wondered, oftentimes I've wondered, why didn't God make a day with 30 hours in it, 50 hours, 100 hours in it? Why didn't God make a 10-day week? Why, why is it a seven-day week with 24 hours? And you know the answer to that question just like I do. Even if you had a, a day with 30 hours in it, even if you had 10 days a week, there still wouldn't be any change. Your schedule would still be overflowing with way too much on your plates. Successful people have learned to guard their time. Successful people are people who have learned that there are boundaries in life and they need to set them. Successful people are people who truly guard the things that really matter. It's about making sure that the most important things are written onto your schedule, and those are the first things that get done. You write them into ink. Nothing interrupts them. And everything else in your life bows to those most important principles. Now, as, as Christians, God has set out what the most important thing in our life is supposed to be. And here it is. It's the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, Seek first. His kingdom, it's a priority. The kingdom is first, and then seek his righteousness. Seek to live like him. Seek God, seek his kingdom, seek living like him, and all these things will be given to you as well. I, I love this section of scripture. Jesus is talking about the cares of life, the stuff that we tend to worry about, the stuff that gets us down, the stuff that gets us sidetracked, the stuff that you live with every day the not big enough paycheck, the stuff that's broken down, the things that need to be purchased, the to-do list that just seems to be growing on an ongoing basis, the interruptions from, from pressing issues like, like the coronavirus. And Jesus has some words of encouragement to us in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. And here's his encouragement. Don't worry about it. And Jesus then as an illustration says, look around. In fact, look at, look at nature. Look at the birds. Look at the grass. They're not toiling. They're not spinning. They're not all upset. They're not, they're not worried. And, and then Jesus says, if God takes care of them, don't you think that he'll take care of you? Because the bottom line, Jesus says, is you are significantly more important than grass. You're significantly more important than birds. And then Jesus tops the whole thing with this. Seek first the kingdom. God says the priority of our lives is really, really simple. It's his kingdom. It's making sure that his kingdom is first. There is nothing more important than God, his will, his purpose, his heart. There's nothing more important for, for us as, as human beings than to live to bring pleasure to our God. Lives that are well-lived are lives that are set in that direction. To enable us to be settled and set, it's, it's really necessary that we engage in an active prayer life with the Lord. Now, prayer, prayer is simply just a conversation. 
It's a conversation where we talk with God. For, for so many, we, we think that we need to learn this special language about how you do this. You, you don't. Praying is, is when you just sit down and, and talk to God about what you're thinking and, and what's on your heart. It's an ongoing conversation that should be happening all throughout your day. In fact, Paul put it like this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. He said, pray continually. The King James Version says, pray without ceasing. Don't ever stop. Over every moment of every day, over every issue, every decision, I should be turning my mind, my heart, my attention to God and seeking his kingdom in what he would want me to do. Our daily life should be a continual conversation with God about life. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? How do you want me to handle that? How do you want me to be here? How do you want me to respond? And the the amazing thing about the Apostle Paul is his prayer life. There's a lot of things to know about Paul, but the the thing that nabs my attention right here in Ephesians chapter 1 is his prayer life. And if you don't know this, listen, his prayer life was monumental. If you surveyed the letters of Paul in the New Testament— And if you simply just wrote down the things that he was praying for, the people that he was praying for, the issues, the struggles that he was praying through, things that he was lifting up to God on a continual basis, you you just might be overwhelmed. And as busy as this guy was, and let me tell you, he was busy traveling the world as an evangelist, teaching, training, discipling, mentoring, preaching, writing half of the books of the New Testament. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just those books that, that we know about that Paul wrote, those letters. I mean, he had an active correspondence going on. I mean, I'm sure he spent hours and hours every week writing letters. And then you add to that the time that he spent in jail and the times that he was recovering from his latest beating for being a Christian, the times he was tent-making to try to make ends meet, to make, to make a couple of dollars. As busy as Paul was, and he was busy, he was constantly in prayer. Hundreds, even thousands of people were on Paul's prayer list. The question is, how did he do it? And the answer is, he made prayer a priority. And Paul's demonstration of that truth is right here in the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. Paul speaks of the blessings that God, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, the blessings that God has poured out on believers. And then he seamlessly opens up into his prayer journal. And and the purpose is to allow us and the Ephesian Christians a peek into the things that he was praying about and the things that he was praying about specifically for the Ephesian church. Now, as you read here, I want you to notice not only the priority of prayer, but I want you to see the things that he was praying for, specifically what made it into Paul's prayer journal. We learn of two things here in Ephesians 1 that I, that I want to draw your attention to. And the first one is this. There was a focused gratitude. Paul was thankful. And the gratitude that we read about is that, is that the Ephesians were, were men and women, the Christians, who were living out their calling. As Paul begins this section on prayer, it's important to note the type of prayer that was uttered. And that would be thanksgiving. As Paul was thinking about the Ephesian Christians, his, from, his, from his prison prison in Rome, 
The first words that were uttered were words of thanks. He thanked God for them. Now, it's it's a lesson we should all take to heart because your prayer time should always include a season of thanksgiving and praise to God. In fact, this is a great way to begin. God has moved powerfully in your life. If you just take a few moments and, and, and survey your life, survey the last week, the last few weeks, the last month, last year, the truth is God has been at work in your life. My encouragement is to open up your eyes and see it, and then make sure that you are taking time to express to God your gratefulness, your thankfulness that he has moved. As Paul thought about the Ephesians, his mind went to this attitude of gratitude. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 says, for this reason, as Paul begins this new section in his letter, he's building on the things that he just said. Chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, he's, he's praying about these, these, he's talking about these blessings that God has poured into their lives. And now that, that, that they have been poured out, now Paul is going to pray. He says, for this reason, ever since I heard about you, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, as I read the, the passage, a few things about gratitude come to, to my mind. First, Paul was grateful that foundational characteristics were functioning in the Ephesian church. There are some things that a church should focus on and others that really just don't matter. There are some things that should be far removed from a church, things that we should never get into our schedule. They just should never appear because they are not important on any level. And to those trivial things, the church shouldn't spend a moment wasting their time. The Ephesian church was focused on two primary foundational characteristics, and it drove Paul to Thanksgiving. What what, what are they? First, first, they had faith in Jesus. And that drives me to make sure that we, we have a working definition, that we're all on the same page here. True faith is marked by two qualities. True faith is marked by assent and by trust. Now, assent means that you accept something as true. You declare it to be so. And trust means you are obedient to that truth. Now, faith encompasses both of these things. If you just take one of them, it's not faith. James James talks about this. James talks in, in, in chapter 2, verse 26, that faith without works is dead. See, we think the assent thing is important. Here's what, I, here, here's what I say I believe. But it's not enough just to make a claim. What God wants is for your life to be oriented underneath that claim. Ascend to the truth and then live obediently within that truth. The Ephesian Christians were living out their faith. In a, in a hostile world, they were making a difference. The city and the surrounding region of Ephesus was being impacted by the gospel. It's an example to every church of what faith means. It's not about what I believe or what I want or what's on the top of my list. It's about what God believes, what God wants, what's on the top of God's list. God's priority becomes my priority. I accept it. Then I orient my life around it. That was the Ephesians Christians. They allowed the truth of the word of God to impact their lives on a daily basis, and it changed the way they lived. They were living out their faith. And, and, then, and then Paul gives another foundational characteristic that he was thankful for in the church, and that would be love. Their love for the saints. 
Uh, that, that shouldn't be surprising because Jesus commanded us to love. In fact, he said in John 15, 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Our, our faith in Jesus, our faith in Jesus should move us, should cause us to be people who are loving the people that are, that are right around us. Agape, this, you've heard that word agape, this, this word love in Greek is, is a word that is not based on feeling. Agape love is focused on commitment. My, my love for you is demonstrated in the fact that I am giving myself to you for your purpose, for your need. This is the love of Jesus. It's the love of God. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrated his love in this. While I was a sin, sinful person, while I was his enemy, Jesus died for me. God gives to meet our needs. He knows what we need, and he gives of himself for the purpose of lifting us up. He, God is committed to our well-being. Now, th this was the overriding characteristic of this first century church and, and the Christians that filled up this church, the church of Ephesus. They were marked with the love of Jesus. They, they learned it from, from the, the first Christians, which would, have, which would have been the Jerusalem Christians. And I, I, I love how these people gave. In, in Acts chapter 2, we read about this church exploding in power and, and coming into existence, 3,000 people. And then right after that happens, we, we read about the life in the New Testament church. And, and what, it, what it says in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 45, is that these people had everything in common. Everything in common. They sold their possessions to make sure that there was no needy person among them. Later, when this church was coming under fire and they were having their own sets of problems, Paul was out on his missionary journeys taking a collection for the poor Christians that were in Jerusalem. And, and, and now Paul is going to these places and they, they are contributing out of their poverty to make sure that these Christians are well taken care of. The, the Ephesians were living out these basic commands of faith and love. The church was grounded and these qualities. And for that, Paul was thankful. And it leads to a point of application. And it's simply this. Our church, the Grove, we need to model these same essential qualities. To be the church God calls us to be requires us to make these qualities our focus. Our elders, staff, all of our leaders, we, we need to make sure that faith and love are the priorities in our church and that we are living them out. And when we do, we give the Lord something to be very thankful for. A group of believers who get it. Believers who are making a difference in their world. So Paul begins his prayer for the church in Ephesus with a season of thanksgiving. And then he moves to the next phase. And that would be intercession. Intentional intercession. I pray that you will recognize the great resource at your disposal. When it comes to prayer, Paul is really modeling what a prayer life should look like. And, and Paul learned this from Jesus, the model prayer. Jesus gave it to us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's praise, it's thanksgiving for God. And then it moves on into intercession. Begin with praise and thanksgiving, then move to petition and intercession. This is where you ask. And, 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 
And petition is when you ask for yourself. Intercession is when you are lifting up other people. And honestly, the more we grow to be like Jesus, the more we grow to love, the prayers for ourselves are going to diminish and the prayers for others are going to be lifted up because that's what love does. It's not concerned about self. It's concerned about where everybody else is. It's one of the ways that you know you're being like Jesus, growing to be like him. Your focus on yourself begins to fade away. It's not so important. Now, let me just say, friends, it's a really good thing when you take the opportunity to plan your prayer time. My my encouragement to you would, would be to never be haphazard in the things that you're praying for. Make a list. Be specific. And at the same time, make sure you are praying God's will, asking for the things that are in the heart of the Father. Your kingdom come, your will be done. This was Jesus in Gethsemane right before he was arrested and he was going to die. I I don't want to do this, Father, yet not my will be done, but yours be done. And really, friends, praying like this is, this is this is the secret to successful prayers. You want your prayers to be answered? Well, Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. When your heart is aligned with God's heart, those prayers are answered, and they're answered not only positively, God says yes to them, but many times they're answered very quickly. That said, Paul, as he intercedes for the Ephesians, he's asking for two very specific things. First, may God give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Before I I dig into Paul's prayer of intercession for the Ephesians, let me make sure you notice three words here. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, I keep asking. One of the ways God knows what you're really serious about in your prayer time is what you keep coming back to. That's why prayer should never be haphazard, just kind of what's coming off the top of your head. You should know what's important. You should write it down. You should be bringing that to the Father. I keep asking. It's it's something that is continual. Why? Because this is the bottom line of what's important to you. When my kids were growing up, I knew what was really important to them because it was what I kept hearing coming out of them. I knew that that's where their heart was focused into. And friends, this is where you need to focus in your prayer time. So so I'm, I'm... I'm encouraging you to take this step, to continually be asking like like Paul. And from there, Paul continues by asking God to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, there there are any number of well-meaning Christians, even theologians who read a verse like this, and they immediately go off the rails. They believe that Paul is teaching that individual Christians are given a pipeline to hear the voice of God and that the thing that's swimming around in their head is the voice of God and whatever is in their head is the voice of God and so therefore it must be true and right. You hear people all the time saying things like, I got a word from the Lord. Have you ever heard that? I got a word from the Lord. Jesus Jesus spoke to me. He taught me. He told me what to do. He told me what to say. And what I, what I find interesting is that oftentimes these words from the Lord are in direct contradiction to what's written in the pages of the Bible. Listen, friends, that, that's how you know that those words from the Lord are not words from the Lord. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, talking about God's word, talking about the Bible says, 
that the word of God is living, it's active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts. It judges the attitudes of the heart. The, the, the word of God, the Bible, is living and active. It was written 2,000 years ago at its soonest. It goes all the way back to 3,500 years at its, at its oldest points. That would be Moses' writing. And yet the amazing thing about God's word is that it has still an incredible power to make difference in lives today. God's word doesn't need to morph. It's the truth. And something that is true is true for all people at all times and all places. Truth doesn't morph to a set of circumstances. It doesn't change from one culture to another. If something is true, it's true period. And the Bible is God's communicated truth to his creation. If you want your life to be joy-filled and abundant, here's, here's, here's the deal. Immerse yourself in the word of God. Follow the word of God. Let the word of God be your guide, be, be your tutor to take you to where you need to go. Come on, church. Somebody say amen to this, please. Yes. This is the truth. And all truth needs to be judged by this truth because if anything you are believing is contradictory to what is written in this, then it's not this that is wrong. It's, it's that thing out there that you're believing to be true. So make sure you hear that, friends. In a postmodern world like we're living in, what I want, what I think, what I feel becomes the center of my life. And I'm just saying it's wrong. God's word is central. It's not the word that's in my head. It's in the word here. Now, hopefully, the word that's in my head is aligning with the word that's right here. And when that happens, you're, you're, you are in a good place. And, and, and one more thing, let me add here. Not only is God's word true, it also defines what we accept as truth. So if something you are told is true is contradicted to the Bible, and it's not from the Lord. God doesn't change truth from one culture. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's right here that people start talking about love. And this is our world today. I know, I know, I know, but the Bible was written all those years ago, and so, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of you know, an old thing. And what we do with old things is we kind of put them in a closet someplace, and we forget about them. We move to this new place. What about love? What's the most loving thing to do? The most loving thing to do would be just let people go to what will make them happy and what will make them feel good. And I'm just telling you, that's a lie straight from the pit of hell. The most unloving thing that we can do is, is a culture. The most unloving thing that we can do as a church is just to let that go. Truth is truth is truth. And God's people need to stand up and proclaim what is true. The problem with our country is not that it's running amok. The problem with the country is that too many Christians have put their tail between their legs and have just said, well, what are we to do about that? You know, we love you. Have, have, a, have a nice life. No, as people are going straight to hell, that is not loving. That's cruel. So my encouragement, friends, is to be very careful about what you proclaim is true. It's not about a subjective gift of knowledge or guidance or illumination that leads you into truth. No, this is an encouragement from Paul, a prayer for the Ephesians to stay closely in tune with God and to carefully follow his path. So, so what is Paul asking God to give to the Ephesian Christians here? Three specific things. Ready? Number one, he says, 
I'm praying you have a proper attitude. Keep asking that the Lord, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father may give you the Spirit. Now the emphasis here is in the NIV, and I, I, I want to I really make this clear. The emphasis in the New International Version, which is the version that, that I'm, I'm reading out of, the emphasis is wrong here for a couple of reasons. Number one, first, there, there's no definite article in the Greek. So when you come to this word spirit, it doesn't say the spirit. It should be translated a spirit. This is not the capital S of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is the small s. It's a spirit. Paul is not asking God to give these Ephesian Christians the Holy Spirit. They already had the Holy Spirit. They received him when they came to Christ. Acts chapter 2.38 says that. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, so your sins can be forgiven. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you come to Christ, you receive the Spirit. The Spirit does not come and go in your life. You either have him, all of him, or you, or you don't have him. So what Paul is not saying for these Christians here is that I'm praying that God will give you the Holy Spirit. No, he's saying I'm praying that God will give you a spirit. And the second thing I want you to see here is the context of Paul's prayer is that he is speaking of a general attitude of humility. And we, we use the, the word spirit in that sense all the time. He has a spirit of grace. He was in high spirits today. In fact, Jesus used the word that way too. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have an attitude of humility. As Paul intercedes for the Ephesians, he is asking God to help them have a proper state of mind towards all things God. And that would be a, a spirit of humility towards God. Then the second thing that Paul adds in here is in is that we would have a proper attitude of acceptance to what God has already revealed. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, that may, may, may our Father give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now remember, a, a spirit. Paul is asking for the Ephesians to have a spirit of humility toward the revelation of God, towards the Bible. It's one thing to know what the Bible says. It's a whole other thing to accept that revelation that's come from God and to allow it to change your life, to change your attitude, to change the way you think and the way that you're going to act and respond. This is about God's will. It's not about ours. It's not about me declaring something to be true. It's, it's about God is declaring something to be true, and I am ascending to it. And just to be, just to be clear here, God is not into new revelation. We're living in a culture where, where, where people are telling you all the time, God has a new word. It's new wine and a new wineskin. I'm just telling you, friends, wrong. I love my theology professor in seminary, what he says right here. Cottrell says, praying, Paul is praying that God will give us the right attitude towards his already revealed knowledge. As we talked about above, this is all about accepting God's already revealed word. And in case you're wondering, yes, I believe the Holy Spirit does prompt us. I, 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 I believe every day that the Holy Spirit is encouraging you to move and to think and act and respond. He's guiding you into the truth, but it's not a new truth. It's the truth that's already written here. The Holy Spirit is in your life trying to help you, encourage you, move you along. Paul got this in, in Acts chapter 16. He's on a second missionary journey, and he's wanting to go a certain direction, and he kept feeling like there's a roadblock there. 
And he's saying, I want to go here. And it's like, I can't go there. And finally, he goes to sleep that night and he has a dream, a vision, where there's a guy from Macedonia crying out saying, Lord, I mean, come help us. He's speaking to Paul, come help us, come help us. And Paul wakes up and says, we've got to go to Macedonia. And so what he does is he goes, now he wasn't violating any truth of God here to do that. He was following the leading of the Holy Spirit. And as he gets there, friends, that's where the Philippian church came from was from God directing his path this way. So here's the question. Does God direct our path? The answer is yes. Is he going to give you a new word that's going to contradict the pages of Scripture? The answer is no. The Bible is God's revealed will. And Paul is praying for these Ephesian Christians that they would have an attitude of acceptance towards God's already revealed word. And it leads to a third piece of Paul's prayer that he lifts up. And that's that they would have an attitude with wisdom to understand. Keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit that will accept the revelation and wisdom to understand it. Let me again remind you here, friends, that your attitude that you come to the pages of Scripture with is critically important. People... People who accept the revealed will of God sometimes need wisdom to know exactly how to apply it. I I find myself all the time, Brenda and I, all the time, we find ourselves saying, okay, Lord, help us here. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Help us to know. Help us to see. Help us to be very clear that we are stepping in ways that, that, that would be right. God tells us in the Bible to discipline our kids. But exactly how do you carry that out in a way that will be wise, in a way that will be best for them? God tells us to take care of needy people. So, so sometimes we need to, to be wise in how we're carrying that out. There are any number of, any number of, of points in my life where I, I find myself saying, okay, God, I know what you told me to do. Now help me to be wise in the steps I take. And by the way, that's a, that's a very biblical thing to do. James 1 verse 5 says, if you lack wisdom, ask. Ask, and God will give it to you. Now what Paul is doing here is praying that our state of mind will be of such that we are ready to hear and follow the wisdom and revelation of God. Give us complete understanding of the revelation and truth concerning all that God has given us, and then give us wisdom in how to rightfully step in that path. And now with the general prayer uttered, Paul gets very specific. His intercession moves to asking God that he may give them a mature understanding of the resources that he has already, that God has already put into their hands. Keep asking, Paul says in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know. And there are three things here that Paul puts together that you may know. First of all, Paul says, I'm praying that you will know him better. Ephesians chapter 117. The word know here, there's two words in Greek for know. The first one is gnosko. And this word gnosko literally is speaking of a situation where 
You are growing in your knowledge, growing in your understanding. It's like a student taking a class. You go, you take Spanish one, and at, at the beginning, you know very little. At the end of Spanish one, you probably know how to ask where the bathroom is and where the telephone is and, and some, some very primary things. And then you move to Spanish chapter, Spanish two, and then you move to Spanish three, and then you move to Spanish four if you're so inclined. And all the way, you're learning more, and you're growing deeper in your understanding of the Spanish language. This, this is a gnosko kind of knowledge where you're in a process. And that describes how your relationship with God ought, ought to be. The longer you're a Christian, the more you should know him. The more you should know about him. The more intimately you become acquainted with the Bible, the better you know him. Paul is saying that the Ephesians, Paul's praying that the Ephesian Christians will grow in their knowledge of God. Now, the purpose is that you will grow to understand his heart doesn't happen on day one of your walk with God. It's a growing process. When we moved to Phoenix a bunch of years ago, I, I, I got an admin, uh, an assistant. Her name was Linda. And she, she was there to take care of all these issues and needs and help. And she, and she did. She followed me around and I, would, and I would give her stuff to do. And then she would ask for direction and I would give her specific directions. And then she would go do it. And then she would come back and we would talk. And over the course of four, five, six years, she, I mean, she just got to know me really well. When I, when I moved to become the senior pastor of that church, she moved with me to, to be my admin, to kind of be over the office and over all the other people. And she would say, here's where we're going, here's what we're doing, here's what we're going to accomplish. And people would say, why are we doing that? And she said, that's what, that's what Derek would want. And then the question was, well, how do you know what Derek would want? And she, she, her response would be, believe me, I know. I've hung around him so much. I know what he would think about this or how it, my thought process became her thought process. That's how our walk with God should be. After, after 50 years of reading God's word and studying, I'm just telling you, I have, I have a lot cleaner grasp of who he is and what he thinks and how he feels and what he wants. There, there are moments I don't, I don't even have to ask a question. I walk into a situation, I just automatically know what God thinks and what God wants. God's desires that you know him like that. And that knowledge, friend, comes right here from, from this word. It, it, it begins and ends right here. 2 Timothy 2, 15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. God, God wants you digging in to his word so that you know him. Know his heart, know his mind, know his will. And now with this increasing knowledge of God and growing to maturity, knowing him, Paul adds to his prayer. Not only do I want you to know him better, I want you to know your hope. Know the hope to which he has called you. Now the word know here switches. It switches. The first word is gnosko, growing. I'm in a position where I'm growing to know God. It's, it's a processed growth. It's a growth that's going to take place over my whole life. This no is I do. And I do is a knowledge. When you have this, you know everything about that subject. You're sure, you're certain, you're absolutely positive. The words, this word of knowledge speaks of being filled up. There's nothing more to know. You have no questions. In fact, everything 
that you know would be so, so monumental that people will be coming to you to ask the questions because you have all the answers. And that's exactly how God wants you to feel about heaven. God wants you to know, to be absolute, unequivocally sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that when you die, you are going to heaven. Our hope is heaven. And God wants you to be sure of that place. 1 John chapter 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know, I know, know. Not be growing in your assurance, absolutely firmly positive that you're going there. Our hope is in one place, heaven. That's it. The day's coming when we're going to die or Jesus is going to come again and we are all going to stand before him. And on that day, don't you want to hear him say, well done? And don't you want him to usher you into that place? Don't you want to be sure of that now? I don't want to get to that point wondering how it's going to be. God's calling me to live with assurance today about that place. And you can do that. And one more thing Paul wanted the Ephesians to know. He wanted them to know their power. His incomparably great power for us who believe. The heart of God is to move us in and through our daily lives in his power. The word power in the Greek is dunamis. It's literally where we get our English word dynamite from. That power comes from one place, friends, and that would be the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus descended to heaven, he told his followers to go to Jerusalem to wait there. And, And as they were waiting there, here's what he said. You will receive power. Go there, wait. And then you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. You will will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and you will be my witnesses. You are literally going to turn the world upside down, not in your power, not in your authority, by my power, by my authority, by my power that is living inside of you. And the amazing thing about God is that he didn't leave you empty-handed. He's called you to do some very specific things, to live a holy life, to to speak out in his name, to serve his kingdom, to to, to have an attitude like, like Jesus, his character. And to help you to accomplish all of that, he gave you the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life is the resource of God, the power of God that gives you the ability to do the things that God wants you to do. The Spirit isn't with you. He's literally in you. And he's inhabiting you to do this. And you want to know an amazing truth? Here it is, Colossians chapter 2. I'm skipping ahead, but Colossians chapter 2 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. What Paul was saying here is, if you want to know what God was like, look at Jesus. Jesus was God in bodily form. He was full of God because he was God. And then Paul goes on to say, because of the Holy Spirit, and you have been given fullness in Christ. It's the same word here, fullness, fullness. God has put his spirit in you and brought the whole fullness of God into your life. You have the ability. And and what It's not something that's coming in the future. It's something that's in you right now. The fullness of God. You already have the resource. And what Paul is praying for the Ephesians is that they would know it. They would be sure and confident that they had it. Claim the truth. Claim the power. Allow the Holy Spirit to help you put it all into action.
And friends, Paul's intercessory prayer for the Ephesian Christians was that they would know the Lord better. That they would know their hope. And that they would know their power. And church, that would be Paul's prayer for us today. And honestly, that would be my prayer for you as well. That you would know him. You be growing every day in a deeper, deeper knowledge and understanding of who he is. And as you grow to know him, that that will help you to be absolutely 100% positively sure of your knowledge that when I die, I'm going to heaven and that I have the power and authority today to live, to be the person that God has called me to be because I have his spirit living inside of me. And I'm just telling you, if Christians knew these three things, knew God better, were absolutely certain about their hope of the future and absolutely certain that they had all the power to do everything that God would ask them to do, our lives would be very different. So it's a prayer that Paul would want us to pray for ourselves. So that said, let me encourage you to bow your heads. And let me encourage you with your heads bowed, friends, to say, Lord, I want to know you better. I want to know who you are. I want to know you, your priorities, your will. I want to know your heart. And could you take the same step that Paul encouraged? the Ephesians to take, and that would be, and not only that, Lord, I want to know that I'm saved. Help me to claim the promises, to trust your word that says, you have already sealed me into heaven. Lord, help me to be sure. And then would you say to the Lord, and help me to know your power be sure that you are inside of me. That I have all the strength I need to be the person you called me to be. Lord, we're grateful for the truth. We're grateful for all that it means in our lives. And Father, we're grateful that you are calling us, encouraging us to take these steps, to know you better, to know our hope, to know our power. And Father, it's my prayer that our church would grow deeply in these three qualities. That we would be sure, that we would be filled up with knowledge that you are good and you are out for our good and you've already accomplished it. So Lord, move us right now to be people who are willing to take the step that you've called us to take. To move without fear, to eat, in fact, Lord, to shed the fear from our lives and to put faith in its place. Faith and assent to what you have said in an obedient lifestyle to live out what we know to be true. And Father, it's an amazing thing to know that this is your heart for us, to know you better, to be assured of our home, our future, to be assured of our power. Lord, help us, grant us, grant us that 
the will to say yes to your incredible promise. We lift it up in the name of the one who made it possible, Jesus. And God's people said,